Alright, born in Otago, moving to Tabanaki after having travelled the world through culturally diverse areas like Africa and Ngaroa Wahia, Karen has been gifted a worldview staunchly foundationed in fairness and unconditional love. With a very global view of society both professionally and personally, we get a front row seat to the initiatives that Karen has been a part of. From being part of a school, it initiates two hours of priming before school starts, like exercise and meditation and a healthy breakfast and stuff before the bell actually rings and they get to learning, uh, on to ensuring that an important piece of her hometown is saved, a prominent member of the Save the Fitzroy Golf Club campaign. This lawyer is no stranger to campaigning for change as she joins the fight to changing legislation within Aotearoa New Zealand, which discriminates against Māori. She is definitely not your regular Karen. Ite iwi, it is my pleasure to bring to you this corridor with Karen Venimals, not your regular Karen. Easiest place, to, first question I kind of ask everyone, who are you, where are you from, where did you grow up and everything? So I'm Karen Venimals and I was born in Dunedin and um, we grew up on a fire station. Oh wow. Yeah, my dad was a um, in the fire service, he's one of the um, officers in the fire service, and so we lived on station in a fire brigade flat. Cool. So backyard was a concrete um, playground. Well, it sounds cool, but we'll find out whether it really was oh, cool or not. It was. It's pretty cool. We had um, fire engines we were allowed to play on. Uh, we had a sixty-foot tower that we were allowed to climb on until health and safety came in, and then we. <laughs> Oh, they're always a buzzkill, those guys. Um, and so it was a bit, it wasn't, like, it wasn't, like, we didn't have grass. Uh, we did have, we could play games, you know, tennis and ball games on on the back wall. But um, we could play on foam when the fire, when the guys had finished a practice and had foam all over the place. Mm-hmm. And we used to play um, basketball and handball with the um, fireman. And so that was quite cool. Awesome. But it probably wasn't that cool for Dad because he never got away from work. You know, yeah, 20 metres from the office to come home, and everything we did was watched by the firemen. So, if we were naughty, <laughs> we, were, we were threatened by mum to always behave because dad didn't want the backlash of the, the bratty fire kids. So, was it just you guys, or was it kind of like a little community of people? Or was it only your place no, that was there? No, there was a few families, there was about five families, okay. and there were a couple of families that had children the same age as us, and some older kids, and then there's some. Um, men who lived there that didn't have families you know they hadn't quite got to that yet yep so no so it was pretty cool and we were uh, really involved in sport so we played heat sport lots of swimming um i played hockey um and so we trained under duncan lang i don't know if you know duncan i'm not gonna pretend i do no i don't he um coached up daniel loader who won two gold medals at the olympics yeah i know daniel loader yeah he was in our squad he was just a bit younger than us and um so we trained 13 sessions a week two hours a day, four hours a day, two sessions a day, um, 10,000k a session. Far out. weights and calisthenics. Ooh. So, um... Hope you're eating heaps. Yeah, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd, and we'd sleep, you know, we're in bed by 7.30 mm. every night because we'd be at the pool at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning and... Wow. Just go straight from the pool to school, then go from school to the pool and go home, have some food and go to bed. Far so, out. So we went, we, well, well regimented. Yeah, that's right. And um, and I think Mum and Dad did it on purpose because then we couldn't get up to any mischief. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, there's no time for that when you're looking when you go by your schedule. Yeah, that's right. So um, so it was good and it was cool because we got to travel heaps and mm. um, in particular my brother was a really good swimmer so he competed at um, a really high level. I, I, I my, the best I did was I got third in New Zealand. 
Cool. But um, my brother was was really good, and um, and we played water polo. And both my brothers represented New Zealand. Oh. I made the New Zealand squad, but I didn't make the travelling team. <laughs> Missed my opportunity. Yeah. So what I'm going to ask like straight away for me, obviously the the big thing that stands out for me when you're talking about this is discipline. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Was there ever like a time where any of you or your siblings kind of rebelled, like, nah, I'm not going to training today? And what what was that dynamic like with mum and dad? Yeah. Uh, when we were younger, I was like, get out of bed. Um, and get up to the pool, but then I was like, if you don't want to go, that's your loss, you know. So we had to do it ourselves. And for as soon as my older brother got his driver's license, it was up to us to motivate ourselves to get to training. Oh, yeah. So um, if we didn't go, then it was on you. Yeah. Because a lot of, um, I noticed that a lot of youth, and this is like speaking from personal experience, um, I'm still seeing it happen today, there's a lot of people like a lot of young people, when they get to the age where like alcohol and the opposite sex come into play, a lot of their discipline or their training and stuff kind of goes out the window. Did you guys have those sort of hurdles when you were kids? And it was because swimming is so full on, like you, um, the parties were really tame. Yeah. Like, because even if people were drinking, they were home by 8.30 because they were so naked, you know, tired. And as they got older, yeah, there was a bit more misbehaviour, but, not, we didn't really, and we, and so when we were 14, I've got a twin brother, so when I say we, I'm yeah. talking about him, older brother and a twin brother and a younger sister, um, when we were 14, we shipped here, so dad got a promotion and he became the area commander for the fire service here, so we, oh, okay. we shipped up here, and then we got into surf club, and um, kept swimming, and, and did other things, and then life got a bit more interesting, and socially, because yeah. we were doing the super training because mm-hmm. the, the squad up here was doing um, about oh, 4k a session and so having come from 10k a session we're kind of like oh it's just the warm-up this is easy <laughs> and so um so that so then we were able to get into other sports and do other things i did wonder if it was the fiery stuff that brought you here or if it was the hockey because the hockey was what was the hockey like here at the time you've talked oh, about yeah. it um oh all right um hockey was i was I was all right at hockey. I played for Otago when I was 12. That's mm-hmm. my highlight. Yeah. Um, and then I just played for Girls High. I was just in the Girls High team here. But um, I'm the hockey coach at the moment, so hockey's quite, uh, you know, just for the, my little girls team. But um, I'm not a hockey player, really. Yeah. You know, just... I've played a couple seasons, eh? Like, so I moved back from Australia probably like four or five years ago. And when I first come back, one of my good mates at the time, she was like, hey, um, we need some more people come play. And I was just like, yeah, it'll be fun. I really, really enjoyed it. It's a cool sport <laughs> and it's hard. Because mm. especially on turf, it's so fast. So it's not, it's a really cool sport. And it's cool for kids because from day one, they can participate in the game. You know, sometimes with, like I noticed with soccer, the good players get the ball all the time and the other kids mm. are sort of hanging around the sides. But the ball and hockey goes all over the place, so no one can really control it, especially when they're young. So every child gets to play, they pick it up real quick, and, and they end up having a really great, you know, fun season. I love watching, like, the, um, like, it's, it's like when you watch the rugby games, I've seen it similar with, with hockey games with young kids. It's just all one big ball of kids yeah, right. running around this ball, you see it moving around, it's quite crack up to watch. Yeah, yeah, so then when you come to New Plymouth, um, what was your first impression when you got here? Well, it's crazy because um, coming from Dunedin, we, um, a few things, we got burned with the first night we were here, 
Night number one. Night number one. We haven't actually moved into the house yet. We're in, staying in a motel and we're just going to move into the house the next day. Oh my and gosh. the house got broken into. Where, what, like what area? <laughs> we, we were living in the fire service house, which was on the Ardit Street, just okay. two houses down from the park. Yeah. And, and that was... We put, I, don't, I think we only got burgled one more time, but the cars used to get broken into all the time. Yeah. Just because of people walking up and down all the time. So we were like, oh my God, especially living in a fire station, we're so protected. We yeah, true. Doors. That safety net was kind and of... Then we, first night we're like, oh my God, what have, what have we shifted to? And then it was 4-4, uh, four, four, so year 10. So that was tough, moving sort of partway, halfway through the year, mm. making friends. So that was real, really tough. Um, Fruit trees, it was things grew, you know, Dunedin's quite cold, so we didn't have, we couldn't grow. We had um, citrus trees on the front lawn, it was, that was unbelievable. Yep. And then the... Funny, um, eh, how the little things kind of stand mm, out and make a big difference? And one of the, one of the um, really interesting things is Dunedin is, um, was settled by um, Scots, you know, mostly Scottish people. Yep. The, the Pākehā settlers, and they... Um, named all the streets after Edinburgh, so all the streets were Scottish names. Mm. We shift up here in the streets, uh, Māori names. So I had no idea. I remember one of the first days in school, they made me read the notices, and I didn't know how to pronounce Mangare. Mm. I had no idea, like, didn't, and so I had to go, everyone la, like, Everyone was pronouncing it Mangary. Yeah, but so I, they're getting it wrong still, so but they're was, making fun of you for getting yeah, it wrong. Even wronger. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know where to start because we hadn't really, interestingly, hadn't really touched Māori. Mm. Because it was, you know, the, I guess the population of Māori in Dunedin is quite small. And, um, and I remember going to a marae down there and everyone looked like us. Like they, there wasn't a lot of difference in how we looked. In, the, in Dunedin, mm. yeah. And then um, we're and very different when you into a marae here. Yeah, well, I've just seen people around here. Yeah, you know, the, and um, it's funny because I talk like when I think to um, my first experience going to Dunedin, <laughs> I remember this. I remember this like vividly. I went down to so there was a some sort of legislation change or something that happened. You'd probably know more about it than me. Where um, you weren't allowed to like stack your leave at work anymore or expire after a certain amount, something like that. So I had some leave at my job at the time that I had to use up. So my friends were all at uni, so they're like, oh, come down and spend some time down here. So I went down to Dunedin and had some time down there. And I remember seeing um, this one fella, he was probably, we were on Castle Street and he was probably, I don't know, like maybe 50 metres opposite side of the road. And he seen me and I seen him and he squinted his eyes and he looked at me and then he goes, like this, and did the eyebrow handshake and leaned back and, and I did it back to him and he come running across he's like where are you from he's like there's no brown faces down here and he was just so pumped to see me yeah. and I remember that being like I was thinking like, wow, like you're a good friend you need some mate mate so, yeah. and he was like so excited to see me we had a good like, it turned out to be from Monganui we knew some of the same people mm. so yeah, it was real funny but you know you're talking about when you're coming here and, mm. and a lot of things that surprised you mm. I kind of experienced the reverse when mm. I went down there mm. and I was surprised by what was surprising mm. and yeah so that's funny mm. yeah interesting yeah and, it, and we um it took me a little bit longer to love it here just because i left all my friends behind because mm. how old were you so 14 40. yeah mm. so that's a that's a key that's a key yeah, yeah key age but well, we joined um fitzroy surf club and we've got really involved with swimming and surf club and we set up a water party team here and um you know, so the we were super busy, you know, really busy and loved it, you know, got made friends really easily. Cool. And um, 
and mum and dad made lots of good friends too, it was awesome. So then um, my nanny used to come visit us from Dunedin and she said, well this is where I'm from, you know, this is where I was born. This is the house I grew up on. I'm in and you're from Oh. This is the land that we used to own. This is, and, and so she talked. But she lived in Dunedin? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so she had um, left here when she was 18 because she was pregnant and she wasn't married. Ah, uh, yeah. And her mum and her, because um, great granddad had passed, um, left so that no one knew she was pregnant. I was actually having that conversation with a friend the other day. Like that was the thing, right? Mm. Like that's that used to happen a lot. Or like people would get sent away for work, mm. but they would go and have their kid, and then would get the farm night out or mm. given to another family or whatever, and then they would come back. Come back, like I was just away working for nine months, months yeah. ten months. Yeah, yeah. And so she tuned up in Dunedin, and then her mum brought the the baby up, is and it was brought up as her. Um, daughter I was a boy oh yeah so, um, and then she got married and had my dad and so that that son then his first son was was brought up as his uncle so but it was actually his brother yeah 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 which is like more common than we'd probably think yeah a lot of people might be going wow but mm. check your own family tree yeah, it's right. probably in there somewhere right. yeah and then she um, so she knew quite a bit of history about about where we lived and where we came from and um, and she talked a bit about how on the family land um, there was Māori Wars yeah. and she's right, what she's talking about is the Battle of Wairaka out at Omata and, um, and I can't remember, I think that was about 1860 and, um, and so it, was, it just didn't feel real, like it was just like this fairy tale because they've never heard anything like that. Before. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then when I went to university at, back in Otago, they talked about it. They didn't talk about that particular bit of land, but they talked about it more. So that was the first real formal experience of learning in the history of, of New Zealand. Or, in terms of like land confiscation and stuff mm-hmm. like that? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, so that's quite interesting. So yeah. this is a uni, so you were eight, 17, 18, 18 at the time? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, um, so I went to uni to study law. I've always wanted to be a lawyer since I can remember. Why? Um, I think it was because, um, so I've got an older brother, and I've got a twin brother, and my older brother's two years older. And so you're always mitigating. <laughs> and I was all good till I got to about, um, till I got to about 12, and then they got stronger and faster. Than me. <laughs> and so then I had to get stronger and faster with my mother. Yeah. And so I was really uh, quite good at arguing, and so everyone always said, you know, you're good at arguing, you should be a lawyer. I think that's probably why. <laughs> but I also, the, why I really wanted to go was because I could see that there was some real iniquity in the way women and men were treated mm-hmm. and um, I really wanted to go and help with that you know that was sort of my driver to get there so in your mind can I ask then like when you when you picture that iniquity and how your choice of career you wanted to impact that how did you see your your choice of career impacting that iniquity well because um, at the time so it was um, in the early 90s mm-hmm. late, late 80s um, Women had, the law just recently changed, but up until then, women could have been married for, say, 20 years, and the house was in the man's name, and that he'd have an affair and move on to have a new partner, and the woman with the four children would be, left with nothing. Well, left with nothing. He'd, he'd have the house, she'd get maybe $5,000 cash, where you go and make life for yourself. Yeah. And so it was, you know, trying to equal that out and make sure women were protected and, and got good support and... 
Um, and then also just, you know, that abuse, you know, domestic violence and, and helping with that. So, but what happened when I got out of law school was I didn't get into that area. Mm. So what, Which often happens. Yeah. No, people always end up running a different lane to what they think. I, I've got so many friends, I'm sure you too, you do as well. Went to uni to study one thing, come out and do something completely mm. different. But. Yeah, so, um, and so I, didn't, I didn't finish uni at Otago. My twin brother went travelling and he was sending me postcards from Paris and wherever, Holland, and, and I went, hang on, I was the one that was supposed to travel. <laughs> so I um, took a couple of years off and went over to London and worked over there. And, Travelled quite a bit, and then um, then came home. But I came home by Africa, so I travelled through Africa and then worked in South Africa. Did, what did travelling teach you? Just because I know my travels, like I lived in the UK for a bit too. Like all my travels, like deeply and profoundly affected me. Mm. Maybe not so much at the time, but definitely in retrospect. Mm. I think so at the time as well, but definitely one hundred and ten percent in retrospect. How about yourself? What sort of things did you kind of learn to... Oh, amazing. Yeah. And the more, you know, like... Um, I think it's really hard because there's so much, but England, how, mm. how much... Hard, we work so much harder than them. You know, we've got a really good work ethic. Yeah. And... Um, and, the, and we don't... Mm. Even I though we've got... A, a, and it's got worse, but we've got... You know, we are getting a class system, but back then it wasn't quite as obvious. But in England, the class system, you had to spot, you know, yeah. and, and, um, and they couldn't put us in a, they didn't know what school we went to or accent didn't tell us what area we came from, so they didn't know where to put us. So it was quite good because you could easily slip between the classes because they didn't really know if we fitted. Yeah. Um, but things like, I went to Russia and it was at the time where the Cold War had finished and we were all still scared of Russia, you know, because of nuclear bombs. And I went there and I could see it was so backward. I said, how are these guys going to ever... Um, be a threat. Be a threat. When we went to the innovation park and it had milking cups on a cardboard cow. <laughs> you know, like, that was amazing. You know, that was the... That was the innovation at the time. And it had the other things. And I'm like, how, how could they be a threat when this is... Um, but uh, and, and just meeting people and understanding the differences and all of that stuff I think one of the m- most um, profound things was the, when I arrived in Kenya so Kenya was the first time I'd ever been in a country where I was in the minority and in Kenya I to feel what it's like to be a minority in a country and walking down the street and everyone's staring at you because you look different and not being able to just sneak in and do things because everywhere you went, anyone's staring at you. You know, so that was really powerful because I've never had gone that, through that. Yeah, had that experience before. So it gave me some real empathy for people who live in a country where they are a minority and they do stand out. Did anyone um, in Kenya ever say anything to you out loud, like about you being different, or was it um, more just the body language yeah, and stuff like that? No, people would always try and feel me here. You know, things like that. Oh yeah. Um, because they uh, and see my eyes, they couldn't, you know, but um, but not really because they they just stared at you, <laughs> just stared at you, and and probably more so when you go to Asia, they are more they more come up to you and sort of really stare at you and and inspect you, yeah, <laughs> want to touch you and feel you here and things, 
Yeah, but no, and um, and also just, uh, and then I lived in South Africa, so that was quite interesting because it was when apartheid was still going, and um, I lived in a place called Petermaritzburg, which is beautiful. It's got um, Drakensberg Mountains. It's beautiful. Where's it called again, sir? Um, Peter Maritzburg. So it's in Natal. So Durban is the big city. Yep. Peter Maritzburg is the capital of Natal. Okay. It's much smaller. It's only a little. And Durban's on the coast, so it's about 80k from Durban. And they call it Sleepy Hollow because nothing too much ever happened there. <laughs> um, and what was, you know, I really, I really loved how beautiful South Africa was, and mostly people were really nice. But I just I couldn't stay there because I couldn't cope with how people were treated. Mm. And um, for example, so you go into a supermarket and um, the people on the till would be Indian, people packing the bags would be African, and the managers would be walking would be white and walking around the shop. And in a restaurant that I worked in, all those wait staff were white, all the kitchen staff were African and the kitchen staff for lunch got a boil up you know some bones and some mealy and a pot and we got whatever was on the menu at half price mm. you know, so we got steak and chips and whatever and they got a bowl of mealy with meat flavouring or whatever yep you know, whatever was thrown in and then we'd have um you know, you'd have some drinks to celebrate something and you'd go, oh, we're off to the pub, do you guys want to come? Oh, we're not allowed to come. We're not allowed to go. Where are you going? We're not allowed to go. And sometimes they'd come along. Come on, come on, come on. And you could just see everybody staring at them because they're, you know, in the place they shouldn't have been. You know, why are you guys here? And, um... So was there, like, a bunch of, um... I don't know, tourists or, like, people like yourself who, who were, like coming from another country, was it was you the only one at this yeah. place or were there like you and an Australian maybe no, and someone else? Um, or? There um, was my twin brother, the reason I got to that restaurant was my twin brother had somehow managed to get himself there and he was the manager. Cool. So, so anyway, I got a job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you knew someone in there. Nepotism. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so he was here and me, but everyone else was South African. And what was really, and what was hard about it and, um, is that it just felt like... Um, it was felt unsafe, like you couldn't, like sometimes you'd see blood from a murder, you know, someone just got out of the movies one day and someone had been deceived or shot outside movies. Um, and that was plain and kind of every day mm. there, right? And you weren't really, and I wasn't really used to it, and because here you just walk home at night from the pub if you can't get a ride. And so I'd try and I'd do that there because we didn't live far from town, and anyone was so mad at me because it's so dangerous. And I kind of got the idea after we were, but. Um, Every, all the windows had bars on them, you know, your, your house, every window in your house, every door in your house had bars on it. Sure. And um, most houses were fenced with dogs to scare off people. Yep. And... Um, the best security you can ever have. Yeah. Dogs. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, everybody sort of hated everybody else. So, like, the Afrikaners hated the English, and the English hated the Indians, and the Indians hated the Chinese. Everybody hated the colours. Mm. You know, it, it was, you know, the coloureds are a mixed race, you know, mm. so you, you know, and everybody had 
they seem like to get it from what I understand and like my my knowledge of Africa is like very little like culturally I've made friends with Africans throughout the world um, and all my travels some of them I still keep in touch with to this day and it seems like and tell me if I'm wrong from your experience but it seems like the coloured kind of cop it from all sides everybody hates them yeah yeah and but but if you got Afrikaners on their own, lovely people, generous, share everything. Mm. English, lovely people, share everything. Um, Indians, lovely people, come over for dinner. You know, but you get them in the same room. But they, but they all don't, they don't trust each other, and they're all sort of, you know. And it was just that culture that was created, and it was such a shame because it was it is such a beautiful country mm. and so much potential. So in the end, I um, couldn't cope with it, so I came home. You know, I needed to get home, and I've been. How long were you there? I was. I was there for about a year. Okay. And I got, and I've been away for about four and a half years, so it was time, time to come home. So I come home and finish uni, but one cut and um, and that was awesome because then I got made really good mates and and um, learnt heaps. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Um, very um, bicultural. I was going to say that would have been like how you came to kind of Taranaki and noted some mm. some differences to Dunedin. Mm. Going to Waikato would have been a level up, right? From And especially from Otago University, like pole opposites. But um, yeah, so that was really cool. And um, to help pay for uni, I had a few jobs and one of them was um, swim teaching. And I got the head coach role at the Narawahia Swim Club. Oh, well. <laughs> And, uh, what year was this? Um, in uh, 2000, 1999. Okay, that still would have been a bit of, like, for lack of a better term, a bit of a culture shock for you, I imagine, or not? Oh, um, oh not so much, because okay. I've been living around it all over but, um, but it was cool, it was really cool, because you could really help, you know, and the kids were awesome, and I really had trouble pronouncing names, and they used to give me such hard time. Yep. Try with these. Um, I do like I have to admit, I've been the first person over there. So I've got cousins and family and stuff that come from there. Girls I went to school with um, at the Kutukopa over here, they actually are from there in Huntley. Mm-hmm. They kind of family spread throughout. And I'll be the first one to admit that I give Ngaroa here so much grief. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, like, there are cool, well, those smaller places like that that are tight knit communities, like you say, you find some of the best people in the world because oh, they're just willing to cool. lend a hand left, right, and centre. Everybody jumped in. Nobody had any money. There was no money for the club. We just did it on a smell of an oily rag. It was awesome, really cool. And the kids, you know, got into it, and the heaps of kids. It was and it was cool. So I really enjoyed that. And then I got headhunted to, um, you know, all my mates were getting headhunted to go to Russell McVeigh and something Greece and in all the top law firms, and I got headhunted to go to Hamilton Swim Club <laughs> as the uh, head coach. <laughs> Um, and so I... Talented class. Yeah, that's right, that's right. That's right. Um, all those years of study. Mm. And so I took over there, um, running that, and that was awesome too. So I got to, um, uh, I don't know how, it might have been four years, three years I was there, and really helped grow the culture and build the club and get the kids swimming really nicely and, and doing some good times and getting medals and things. So that was, that was really cool. Do you still have any involvement with them? No, no, yeah. no, no. But um, but swimming's a big part of my life. I still swim. I still go swimming. Cool. Um, 
lots of mornings in the wet, but, you know, as much as I can. But um, I have contact with kids, so like we're, I follow them on Facebook, make sure they're doing all right, and yeah. and um, a few of them went off to be lawyers, and so I kind of think, oh, maybe I have. Yeah, you had a bit of an influence there, awesome. Yeah, and so they reach out every now and then, and it's cool to see what they're up to. That's so important, I reckon. Like, I'm, I'm definitely, like, the product of, like, like people like that like how you mentioned like you just check in and say like to, to honestly it might seem so small but it's so important like you know like I've got heaps of people in my life that that's kind of they've coached me in this like league team or softball team or they mentored me for a little bit through like I like there's still one lady I keep in touch with I did two weeks um, of work experience during school as a teacher because they really wanted to thought that I'd be good at being a teacher God knows why, but they thought that was me, and I'm still in touch with that lady to this day. And like those little conversations and stuff that you share throughout the journey, man, it's so cool. So I'm stoked to know that there's girls and boys out there that have got you as someone, kind of just giving them that little push every now and then and checking in. Honestly, it's so important. Oh, and it fills your heart, mm. you know, working with children and watching them develop. And um, and there's a couple of things I learned when I was coaching. Well, yeah. One is, um, you know, people are so, or, uh, you know, parents are so into pushing their kids in sport when they're really young. Mm. And they're like looking at them when they're seven going, you know, you've got to, why aren't you in the top team, you know, whatever, all this perform, perform, perform. But you, you need them some in the sport when they're 17 and 18 because that's when they're going to be good. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter if they're the top person when they're seven or eight or nine, you know, if you're a parent, you know, walking around going, oh, my, my child's a genius because they're top of their sport at nine. doesn't mean anything. Yeah. They've got to still be playing it when they're 17, 18 because that's when it actually turns into something. So is that kind of the key then, do you think? Like, is it kind of just let them have fun yep. until they're, like, it's 14, 15 and then maybe start? Let them say they're flat. They're still doing it next year. Mm. The key is still enjoying it, still doing it next year. And then, and, and oftentimes you're really good at nine because you've matured a bit quicker than the other kids. Um, and so those kids that don't mature so early, they have to work hard to keep up with you. Yep. So they know how to work hard. So when they start growing, they know how to work hard. And, they and they've grown, they're caught up physically. So those kids that mature too soon, or not too soon, but earlier, yeah. have a disadvantage because they... Because they kind of get that mentality. I'm good. Yeah. I don't need to put the work on. I can put a, pull up the handbrake here a little bit. Interesting. Yeah, so, um, and also, don't, adults, don't jump in, you know, don't, we'd have, um, oh, kids having fallouts and parents would get all involved and, and the kids would be mates again the next morning and the parents wouldn't talk for two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so just keep away, let the kids sort it out. And, and one of the other things I noticed, and I don't know anything about children and child psychology and school and anything, but once boys got to year 12 they didn't want to be at school anymore you know it was really hard to keep them in school mm. and parents were really pushing you know just you get through this year and then next year and then go to uni when really i just think get them off into a trade you know because it was really you could see these parents fight or have the conversation day. with them right about mm. what they actually want to do mm. and but even i don't know what i want to do well go and learn how to be a plumber or a builder or an electrician because then you've got a school for life you get paid while you're doing it and then if you go actually I did want to go to uni well then go, go to, to uni, uni yeah. and then you've still got that life school you know so um, and, I, and it'll be interesting because my boy's six 
Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we'll I'll check in with yeah. you in five years and see how we're getting on. Right. We'll have a five-year update. Yeah. We'll go what six, eleven, and sixteen, <laughs> and we'll see how he's tracking. Yeah. Can I ask, like, just one thing that's come to mind with you speaking about your travels and stuff and you notice the the inequality overseas, did you ever think, man, does anything like that happen at home or or did it not cross your mind at the time while you were travelling? Um, no, definitely, definitely. And, um, but probably more so when I, because I came back to uni here up in Hamilton, you mm-hmm. know, that um, because it, well, there's a real focus on, on that sort of stuff. But even just having a look in Hamilton, there is you mean? Yeah, oh, oh yeah. Uni, it's oh, yeah. really. When you say that sort of stuff, what are you what are you referring um, to? About um, inequality. Yeah. You know that it's easier for some people than it is for others. But but even just looking at Narawahia versus Hamilton Swim Club, you know the the resources available here and the res- and the money available here at Narawahia compared to Hamilton, you know completely different playing fields. Yeah. My sister was um, as a primary school teacher and she taught at a, a school in um, just near Mount Wellington and it was a Diesel 1A. I don't know if that's, if that's real. It was Diesel 1 but it was had another something. And they still had blackboards. Um, they had the, you know, it was super poor. The kids mm. didn't have anything. And she went from there to uh, Southall which is a private um, primary school yep. and just the difference you know it's like two different worlds just completely you know it yeah so so all through my life once actually probably more so once I was in Dunedin it, you could see it you know there were things that you could see and even um, we see it at work here as well so it's sort of all over the place mm. so what um, I guess what what are you doing to kind of try and help out with that mm. stuff? <laughs> I know it's a big, it's a huge question, and I'm, I probably could have worded that a bit better, but I think you get what I'm trying to yeah. ask. <laughs> yeah, and um, so a couple of things. One is um, I'm really conscious. I went to something a couple of years ago, and uh, oh, I did a leadership course actually. I did a leadership course in Auckland, and it was called. I was uh, was based in Auckland, but we did it. We had a session at um, Hopu Hopu, which is just north of Narawahi, mm-hmm. um, where they've got the um, Taimui campus. Yep. And we stayed there for a week, and then we went to Manarewa um, Marae for a week. And then we went to Police College in Wellington and stayed there for a week, and then we went to uh, San Francisco for a week and stayed there. Okay. Alright, it's some diverse, yeah, yeah. It's really amazing. And so. And this was all consecutive weeks? Um, one week um, over, one, you know, one was in March, one was in June, one okay. was in three yeah. years. And because you needed to recover, because the week was quite full on. That's what I was going to say, back to back weeks would have been intense. Yeah, and um, we went up to the, the staying at the Marae was amazing. It was, it's an urban Marae, I don't know if you've been there. And on the ceiling. Um, you talking about Mandurewa? Yeah, down the, you know, down the beam, and I don't know there's no group, down the um, centre of the ceiling, they've got things coming off the side and every nationality is represented mm. so that any person who turns up to that marae feels like this is a safe place, this is their home 
and um, and they uh, welcomed the homeless people in for three or four months one winter when it was really cold and there was really lots of homeless people fed them all through the winter and they um, you know welcomed us you know and most mostly we were white women there was oh, there was probably about a third of us that part of that were ethnically diverse, so mm-hmm. we went all white women, but mostly. Um, and uh, so that, but so we stayed there, so it was amazing the generosity that we got from there. But then we went and visited um, a Hindu temple, and uh, and they welcomed us in and they said, Look, this isn't this is for everybody, this isn't just for Hindus, this temple, anyone's welcome, no one's ever going to be judged. You just come in, follow the protocols, and, and you're all welcome. And then they said, you know, so what we do, every Sunday, uh, we volunteer and we cook meals for any person. Uh, so it could be somebody who's a student, someone from, you know, who's a new immigrant, could be homeless, could be just anybody turns up and they feed a thousand people every Sunday. So we were blown away. It's like, oh, what do I do? I do, I, do I do that for my community? Yeah. And then, um, then the next day we went to the Sikh temple, and every single day, people from the Sikh community volunteer for an hour and a half to go and cook and serve. So we got served. We sat on the floor and they dished up a beautiful meal. Um, Five hundred people, uh-huh. and this is voluntary every day. Every day, and in the Sikh community, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know much about them. Neither. In the Sikh community, uh, to be a good Sikh, you've got to give for you. You've got to do things for your community. So the higher up you get, the more that you've done for your community. Mm. And so to to be a good person, you've got to give. Mm. And so Sikh people are just giving all the time because. It's part of the lines with their values. Yeah. And so the next day we went to um, the Pacific Indian, uh, Pacific Advanced Senior School. So it's a, it was it's a charter school that was set up. Uh, Michael Jones is on the board, cool. and um, and there was a um, guy in Gisborne who was teaching, and so he was tapped on the shoulder and said, "Oh, can you come and run the school?" And so it's four year, 11, 12, 13, and they are all Pacific kids. And they've come from other schools, because obviously school doesn't start at year, you know, um, 11. So they've come from other high schools. They've either been bullied, or they haven't got on, or, um, you know, they've been in trouble. And they come to this school, and they um, turn up at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, they've got a really basic uniform, that everybody wears the same uniform because um, most people can't actually afford the uniform. Yeah. And the first thing they do is they uh, get them to do some exercise. So all the kids turn up and they either run down to the boxing gym and do to boxing, they do a dance class, they do calisthenics, some kind of exercise. Uh, and then they sit down and have breakfast. And breakfast is the community, uh, a lot of the community provide the breakfast and, you know, food gets delivered and stuff. And then after that they... Um, worship so they sit together and they have a bit of a worship and they do some singing on mm-hmm. and then after that they have sort of like the school assembly and the principal says right this is what we have to do with teachers you know exams coming up we're focusing on this you know and so school so they got to school at eight o'clock at ten o'clock they start learning so these kids all come from 
most of them come from pretty disadvantaged families. You yep. know, there might be thirty of them. You're living in a two or three bedroom house. The six foot two um, young men either sleeps on a two seater sofa or on the floor. Whoever gets to the sofa first gets it. Yeah. Um, you know, and and they there's no quiet space in the house for them to learn. You know, they can't study, and so um, having the school. Um, completely changed their life because it was folk, you know, they had two hours to get whatever had happened last night out of their head yep. and get themselves in a position to learn. Yeah, that two, that two hours of, mm. of priming before the learning starts, man, like that's amazing. Yeah, just so powerful. And the principal just talked to us about how much of an impact it had. Oh. And so you, when you, you, you had a two-week trial, so you didn't automatically get into the school. Uh-huh. So you turn up um, and you're there for two weeks. And if you don't sort of fit in, if you don't follow the rules and and meet the expectations, then you don't get a uniform and you don't get to stay. But um, Michael Jones, the board has to kick people out. And I don't think he's brave. He's not that kind of person. No, so no, 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 no. And he said, you know, what was, you know, so... You know, here's us, mostly white women who are business people. And um, what was really sad or, you know, shocking for me was we hang out uh, with these kids for the day and they're awesome, really cool, but they were really shy, they wouldn't talk to us. You know, they wouldn't come close to us or talk to us and certainly wouldn't look us in the eye, but I now know that it's disrespectful to mm. people when I say I but um, when we're trying to engage with them and, you know, what do you want to do? Oh, you want to be a lawyer? Cool. What do you, you know, here, here's my thing and, I, you know, we'll connect and you can... Um, and then we talked to the principal afterwards and he said that most of the kids in that room had never been in a room with a white woman before. Mm. So they live in New Zealand, in Auckland, and a part of Auckland that they don't mix with Pākehā. Mm. So for them, it was a cultural shock. Like we were like aliens. Yeah, yeah. And so what we, so they sort of talked to us about that part way through the day. And so then we said, well, maybe they want to need to hear some of their stories because they might realise that we're actually not Yep. And so a couple of the women got up and said, I'm from a solo mum, family, you know, we couldn't afford to eat. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. And these kids are going, oh my god, they're just like us, they could be like our sisters. Yeah. And um, and the principals told us a story about, uh, and so they wrote us a note after we'd gone and said, thank you so much. You know, you guys were so, it was so um, life changing meeting you. We didn't realise that we were so similar. We thought we were a completely different species. Mm. And, and we think you're like our sisters. You know, how cool is that? That's amazing. And so we were as, we got so, as much out of it as they, we got more out of it than them, actually. But um, the principal said that what's been happening with the school is that, because um, up in South Auckland, they, the young boys get tapped on the shoulder quite young to say, this is the game that you're going to be in. Mm. I don't know how they do it, but, you know, however that happens. And, um, and so there's real pressure for them to join the gangs. And what was happening is these kids were going to the school and they didn't want to be part of the gangs. And so one day the gang turned up to the school and said, with spades and baseball bats and things, and said, we want our boys back. You know, you're taking all our boys. And the principal, he, he'd come from um, 
I think he's come, he was in Samoa and then he worked in Gibson for a bit. But he hadn't really had much to do with gangs. I mean, he heard about these gangs, the kids at school were talking about them. He was like, oh yeah, whatever, gangs. Yeah, yeah. And then they turned up and he's like, oh. I oh, get the real. Okay, I get it. And so he wasn't really, you know, he didn't really know how to deal with it. So he was mm. just kind of like, oh, hey, guys, you know, you can come too. You know, if you want to, they're staying, they want to be here. But if you want to be here, you can come too. The guy's going, oh, well, you know, we're not going, we don't want to be at school, what are you on about? And he said, oh, you know, we do all these things, we go, they said, you know what, next year we're going to go down to the mountain and we're going to see some snow. And these kids were like, what? Oh, so these were kids that turned well, up? Probably 30, 40, 15, 16. They're the ones that turned up with the spades of that? Yeah. Oh, shit, I thought you were saying, I thought this was men that turned up. Well, they probably looked like men. Yeah, 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 uh, for sure. Um, yeah, and they might have been 19, but well, they're school age, they're yep. school age. Anyway, by the time he'd finished with them, they'd all put their weapons down, and they're like, yeah, okay, we'll give it a go. And so they come to school, and so some of those boys were still at school when we got there, and they were finishing, they were doing NCEAs. And they weren't finishing by the time they were 18, they might have still been hanging around till they were 20, mm. and they were only doing one paper a term, or and then having to work it somewhere. Yep. To, um, help pay for the family, but at least they're still engaged in education and yep. they're still getting it. And so there was a real example of what we do, we, you know, we've just got this blanket, this is what, this is how we do it, you know, we go to school, we all go to, these schools look like this, we, the expectations are this, this is, you know, everyone in the country's got the same rules. But this was a real working example of actually if you change the model to suit the audience, you'll get success mm. and um, we, we were completely blown away with these guys and, and the, the, their principles so charismatic you know really sounds like it if you taught those guys to put their weapons down and there was this one little one girl and she um, turned up at school she was having which was really difficult just really having trouble with her you know her parents were having trouble she's got expelled from school because she's been really, really great being and they brought her to school and she sat in the chair with her hair over her face you know, and um, wouldn't answer, just grunted when he spoke to her, and um, and the parents were like, man, we don't know what to do with you, you know, this is what we've got, and, um, and but when we came to see the school, she, within two weeks, completely turned around, so it was just a different way of talking to her, and a different way of learning, and he worked with the parents on how to deal with, you know, how to talk with her, and how to engage, and he worked with her, and when we were there, she got up and she did this beautiful speech about oh, wow. how much of a difference school's made for her life. She's like the head girl. Now from not, you know, getting expelled from school, being a rat bag, being really disrespectful to her parents, and he, he said that, you're someone, this is not how we treat our parents. You know, we treat our parents with respect, and you, and, um, came at her from that angle. <laughs> and then just engaged her, and then she got really interested in the subjects, and, and then she got up without any notice, she just said, um, I can't remember what her name was, Sarah, can you just jump up and talk to these uh, women about what, what, what you think about being here and what, what's happened and how you, you know, whether it's a good thing to be, be here or not. Mm. She got up there and she just was eloquent and spoke for about two minutes on the benefits of being at school and what a difference in the life it's made. Far out. Yeah. 
know, it's just sad. I'm all crying. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting emotional as you talk about it. Yeah. Just because when you describe some of these people, you know, these are people that I grew up with. There's yeah. very similar people to grow up. Like I, when you talk about the girls pulling the hair over their face because they don't want to be seen. Yeah. Man, I remember having people like that that I grew up with and I could never imagine them getting up to give a speech. And then I just feel like crying talking about it. So when we were leaving, there were these kids, and we just talked to them and we did, we went, we went to the hip hop group with them and they were just laughing at us. And when we finished, I got up and I said, now, if you guys are ever in an interview and there's a white woman interviewing you, just remember what we look like. <laughs> do your Don't task. be intimidated. <laughs> yeah. Remember there's always something you can do better yeah, than what we yeah. can. But, um, and, then, and I also got up and said to them, you know, we want people who look like you in our businesses. Mm. You know, so don't think that we don't. We, it, it is valuable for us to have people who look like you in our businesses mm. to know that, you know, because I don't think they know that. And at the end, when we were just about to leave, that they were so, um, they got so much out of us being there that they, and they, they don't just roll it out for everybody, they did the haka for us. Oh, wow. Oh. They would have broke you. <laughs> yeah. We're all crying. Oh, it was awesome. The hackers yeah. always, always get you broken. Yeah. Oh. So um, yeah, so that you know, and so that really made it real. And so when I mm. came back from that, and then we went to, so that was, so that was awesome. And then we go to Parliament, so that was amazing. We met all the ministers and the prime minister and teacher, teacher. But then we went to San Francisco, and so San Francisco is one of the richest, well, must be one of the richest cities in the world. You know, it's got all Especially the now with like Silicon Valley and yeah, stuff being close yeah. by. And um, all those people who live there get paid a billion dollars a year because they're tech people. And I'd never been, I'd always dreamed, I always wanted to go to San Francisco. It was like one of the places, I wasn't interested in America, but I really was fascinated with San Francisco because it was in movies and the yeah, yeah, for sure. and trams. And, and so, Full house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we got there, and it was full of homeless people. Mm. Like, we got off the, we stopped at the first traffic light, got off the airport, you know, caught the Uber in from the airport. First traffic light, there's, there's one guy shooting up, one guy completely out of it, and another guy waiting to have his turn. Like, oh my god. Honestly, so like when I first went to LA, like you see the Hollywood Hills, you see all the movie premieres, same thing. When I got to Hollywood on that main strip, same scenes. And then we got to our hotel and we were just on the edge. Um, I can't remember what it's called. Um, there's an area that's really um, has a bit of trouble. That lots of, um, that's where the, you know, if you're going to get murdered, you're going to get murdered there and the drug deals and all that. And we were just staying in their hotel, was sort of right next door to that area. And so we you know, put our bags down, went for a walk, and you'd walk down the street, you couldn't walk for two metres without walking over someone homeless. Mm. So like, it wasn't, you know, Auckland's bad, but this was like just, I think there's like 50,000 people just in that business, and they're all in the business district. And they're urinating in post boxes and having fights, drunk, out of it, wheelchairs, really, you can see they're sick people. Mm. And they've got nowhere else to go except for to live on, in the richest city in the world. These, this is how, and their CBD. This is how you treat your most vulnerable. Like it just doesn't make any sense. And so we went to all tech companies and met all the, you know, these cool tech people. And they'd tell us about all the cool things they were doing. And after every single one of them, We'd say, but what about the homeless people? 
What are you doing for them? And they go, oh, oh I suppose, yeah, I suppose there is a bit of homelessness, isn't there? Like, they didn't notice it. Yeah. They see it so much. So that was a real eye-opener, like, you know, do you want that wealth if it brings that? Mm. You know, because what had happened is um, many parts of San Francisco weren't for rich, you know, weren't expensive, but because all these tech people came, they needed houses, so they pushed all the lower income people out, so they can't, they all can't afford to live anymore. Living, yeah. So they all had to move out to Oakland, which is the city next door, or they on the street. And, and, um, and, and you know, we don't, we're, we're so lucky in some ways that we have a social welfare system. Over there, if you haven't got a job, you haven't got healthcare. So if you um, lose your job, that's, you basically, that's the end of it. Yeah. And one of my mates lives here, she's from England, and she said their friend got um, all the health insurance is paid for by your company that you work for, um, and he got cancer, and they said, oh, look, you've got 18 months to live, and and he'd taken time, he had to take time off work because he was so unwell. You've got about 18 months, but um, work canned him. They said, oh, you can't work here anymore because you can't work, so see you later. And that stopped his health insurance. And oh, he had wow. 18 months of treatment, you know, to help him survive. Mm. And he went, and that was going to cost his family $300,000. So he just went, no, nah, I'm not putting my family through that. I'm not going to have treatment. I'm just going to die. So, sure. So how, you know, that's a guy who was probably earning $200,000 a year in the tech industry, lost his job, wouldn't have had any cash because they've got to pay a billion dollars, twelve million dollars for a house, mm. and then lost his job, and then didn't have any other option except for to let himself die. So that didn't cost his family. So it didn't. So his family wasn't burdened. How co- you know? Yeah, that's heavy. Yeah, it's really so. So it really made me rethink America because because you always looked at America to go oh. But well, they used to be the, they used to be the gold standard, right? Like you think, like say, ten, fifteen years ago, they were the like we talk about the American dream. Like that existed everywhere. Like even with things I was doing, like sports wise, music wise, all that stuff. But now it's like it's a bit of a taboo. No disrespect to our American friends, and I know we've got a bit of a listenership over there. But man, it's I actually appeared on a podcast as a guest uh, last week. Uh, so there was a panel of eight. So a panel of four that were from America and a panel of four of us that weren't from America and it was kind of like the, the sharing the conceptions and misconceptions and the world view on how everyone else views the states they asked us questions we asked them it was super interesting yeah. and like the things that they kind of value and, yeah. and find important and in comparison to what we value in these different countries like um, there was a dude AJ who's from India and like the way that their value system and what he believes in the way that man I think we could take a lot yeah. from well personally I took a lot from him and the things he was speaking about you could see like that just did not resonate with, yeah. with the American crew that one there as well so but yeah I understand when you're talking about when you see yeah. that homelessness and stuff like that when I turned up in LA and saw all that it was crazy and it didn't feel safe mm. and, and at the end of the um, the week um Tom, my partner, and the kids came over because so because no point me just getting the MD Yeah, yeah. So they, they, spread the joy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so they came over and we, we hung out there for three weeks because I, I really like to stay in a place for ages so you get to know it. Mm. You know, you're not there for two days and you go to the next place. And you can do the stuff beyond the touristy stuff, yeah. right? You can actually kind of take a walk like walks a down a few streets yeah. and and 
the best some people, coffee spot, all that sort of stuff. Best playground, because uh, when you've got kids, it's all about playground. Yeah. And um, and it didn't feel safe to go to playgrounds because there was needles and stuff everywhere, you know. Mm. But um, we quickly moved out of the business district and went and stayed somewhere else because it just felt so unsafe. Like when the kids, you sort of had to shield them from. All the all the stuff, you know, people getting arrested and just going crazy because they're all mentally unwell because mm. they live outside all the time and haven't got any health care. Yep. So, um, but what? Just going back to um, Manarewa, and once we spent that time with those different communities, all of those communities were doing these amazing things for their community or anybody. And I and I thought, well, what am what are we doing? You know, what are Pakeha doing for their community? And, um, and we used to certainly into need and go to a church. So I didn't feel like this at our church. It wasn't sort of welcoming and we're going to, you know, I don't know if we've got it right. I thought, actually, and, and we were, you know, especially you hear um, about the, the young Pacific Island boys, Pacifica boys in um, South Auckland and the gangs, you're really scared of them and it's, you know, you could go down those streets because it might be, you might get converted or something. Um, and I thought, well, it's not real. I mean, it is probably a bit real, but, you know, these are what, these are, that's where these kids live. Mm. And so I thought, actually, when was the last time I went to Cook Street, Mafia? I used to live in Spotswood, so I used to go in there a lot, but, so when I, as soon as I got back, I got in the car and I drove over to Mafia on Cook Street because it, it's become a bit like that. Oh, you don't go there, it's a bit dangerous. Yeah, yeah. So I went and I drove around. I mean, oh my god, it's just normal. Mm. I've got my lawns, everyone, you know, people outside playing. And so it really, you know, we, we've got to stay connected, mm. you know, because if we don't, then this barrier comes up and you think they're different. You buy into the propaganda, right? Mm. Like if you don't actually go there and see what it's like, then the stories you hear and the things you see on TV, they become the narrative. Mm. Well, that's what I believe, was actually going back there and seeing that, hey, things are, aren't that bad or, well, they do need some help. I can mm. help out here. Mm. Either or, or those don't play out. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But the, the point being is that when you're connected or when you go, you get to decide. Mm. It's not you hearing second-hand information and then making your judgments off that. Mm. So that's cool that you went for a cruise through there. Yeah. Oh, and I guess because we lived in Spotswood, so yep. that was part of the, our hood, mm. bigger hood. But I hadn't been for a little while. I'm just here with gang parties on the front lawn. And oh, I'm going to go and check this out. And it, you know, it's just normal families living in normal houses. The housing needs improvement. Yeah. Um, but I did from that time go, you know, these are... Because that's still predominantly state housing, right? Yeah, yeah, they've got rid of some and they've rebuilding some things. Um, but then I sort of, you know, it's the, the, the opportunities that my children are going to have compared to the opportunities in that neighbourhood are going to have is, is becoming much more extreme, mm. wider gap. And so... Um, for me, it's really important to train that game. You know, how do we get it so that those, all of our children get the same, which is what it used to be here. You know, people, it didn't matter how much money you had, you all got to have the same experiences. You all went on a sports trip, you all went to wherever, you all got the same education. Mm. And so how do we, how do we do that? And then I, so then I think, 
and I haven't really done anything about it, so I feel like guilty to talk to you now. <laughs> um, you know, how but that's what, you know, don't, I, like straight off the bat, don't feel guilty. Like the fact that you're answering the question means you're light years ahead in front of other people. Now, in saying that, I know it's not a race. We, we're not comparing to what we're thinking and what we're doing, but the fact you're asking the question, I know it's going to empower someone listening right now because then it'll be like, man, I've been thinking that too. Mm. All right, how do we connect and how do we get together? Because mm. even me, like, I grew up in Swatswood as well mm. and I had a lot of friends and stuff that grew up in Marfell. Yes, we used to give them stick for growing up in Marfell, but they used to give me stick for going to a private Catholic boys' school. Like, it was all part of the banter. But it's definitely something that I'm aware of too and I'd love to be involved with, mm. you know, any plans or whatever mm. you've got going forward. But I know you're about to dabble into some of the things you think need to happen oh. Or yeah. we could do and I just to think as a community we need to reach in you know and, and my kids go to Fitzroy school which is which is becoming quite an affluent area you know mm. there's um, and so the population in schools becoming quite affluent we have lots of opportunities for lots of activities and sports how do we connect with Marfell and it might not be Marfell it might be Maryland's which isn't quite as you know doesn't have the same resources as and help them, those children have the same opportunities as children have. You know, how mm. do we do that? And um, and there is, and it's time, that I think, that, you know, and it's important that we don't just turn up and go, right, here to save the day. Yeah, yeah. One, you know. But, um, Without having an understanding of what's but, yeah. actually going on, yeah. Yeah, and so how, and... Um, I can't enjoy life if other people are suffering. You know, if you, if I'm living a really good life and I know that that person can't afford food, that like my life doesn't feel very good. Mm. You know, how can you enjoy that? And so, um, and I know that I'm learning more and more how my path has been significantly easier because of the family that I was born into, um, and because of the colour of my skin, than other people. So because of that, then it then it's up to me to help those people get to where I am. Can I ask, are those, I don't want to use the word privilege, but are those things that you've always been aware of or are they things you've learnt along the way? No, and, and you don't, because you don't, because we didn't grow up rich, we didn't have heaps of money. Mm. You know, Dad had to work four jobs to start with to try and keep, make four of us under six, three, three under two. Um... And mum didn't work. She Feeding that kind of household, man. Because oh. <laughs> I'm one of five boys. Yeah. And like I always think now, like I'll go with friends, they might have two kids, I'll go with them, just well, cruise the supermarket, do then they're wrangling them and pulling them in, or they're buying a lot of food for two kids. Yeah. Man, I was one of five boys, you guys were all burning 10,000 cows a day or whatever, like, we're doing all your stuff, like, man, that's, that's crazy to think back, like how tough our parents actually mm. But they just, yeah, strapped up and did it, you know? Yeah, and, and, and back then you, you didn't go on big holidays. You didn't go to Australia. It yeah. was like a big deal. Yeah. Like, oh. but, um, that was once in a five-year, yeah. once-in-a-lifetime type thing. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but um, so, so it wasn't, so I didn't notice it because I, I didn't feel like I had a privileged life. There were rich people. Mm. I don't know, they've had a privileged life. Mm. We just, we just thing. Always had to have a job when I was at school, you know, always had to work. For my own university, um, you know, worked at McDonald's. Um. So, was it your travels? Do you think that kind of made you click onto it, or was it? Was it? Oh, I think it's because I know it's hard to pick on a moment, right? Yeah, and I think one of the things was um, even at high school, um, just noticing that you started, and I didn't start till year um, till the fourth form, which is year ten. Um, that 
like Marley girls, there were heaps at the beginning, but by the time I got to seven month, there was only one left. So I haven't, you know, what, where, where have they all gone? You never saw them again. Mm. They were there last year, but they weren't there this year. So I noticed that. And then, um, and I think working at going to um, uni in Hamilton, they, uh, there's such a focus on, um, uh, well, uh, Māori and other diversities. So, so every single subject you did, you talked about what the law says, how does that impact on Māori, how does that impact on people with disabilities or other diversity. So I think that helped, but then it's just everything I've done, you know, working at Ngārawa here with those awesome kids. Yeah. And then um, working, um, at, working in Africa. Mm. Um, living and working in, um, my brother lived in, um, he was in London, in London as well, he was in Tuting, which was quite a um, West African area. Yeah. You know, so it's pretty cool hanging out there. But um, then I've done heaps of different jobs, you know, I've worked in, you know, so I've only been a lawyer, you know, that's only, that's my best, you know, I don't know it's my best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the one that's paid the most. Um, my favourite job was really coaching, you know, with the kids, that was awesome. Mm. But um, but it's just the, the journey, life, throws these things at you. Yep. And, you're, and watching your, um, your friends and your, your friends' children and how things happen for them, you know, that's what I, I widened your eyes. And I think, um, and something that was really powerful, and I don't know when I saw it first, but it was probably about four or five years ago, there's a video that's on YouTube and it goes around Facebook every now and then and it's a, a $100 race mm. privilege. And when you watch that, that really bangs at home that it's nothing about what we've done, where we, you know, where we sit in the race. It's just fluke that mm. we were born to the family we were born to and things happen in our family the way they happen. So you, have you seen that? Yep, yeah. Yeah, I know the video you're speaking on. And the guy, you know, all the kids lined up, they're probably university students, they're all lined up, mixture of colours and girls and boys, women, young women and men. And he says, right, if, you've, um, if your parents are still together, take a step forward. If you um, have never worried about where you're going to sleep for the night, take a step forward. If you've or, or never worried about having food on the table, take a step forward. If you got to university not because of a scholarship, take a step forward. If you, and he went on and on and on. And there were, by the time he stopped, there were some people who were 70 metres-ish down the track, and there were some people who were, hadn't even got off the start line. Mm. And, my, and, and they were, coincidentally, African-American. Mm. And what was really interesting, and then he said, well, you know, look around, look, see where you are, there's nothing you have done has got you to that space. You know, this is just a fluke of your birth. Mm. It's got you here. Um, but he still had the race, so we, you know, only makes it to go. And what was really interesting is that a couple of the guys that hadn't got off the start line yet sprinted their guts out. And nearly won. And they, and they, <laughs> you know, and and what was interesting is these guys here, the guys that were seventy metres down, still ran. Mm. You know, but some of these guys on the back, they didn't even, they just, you could see them just, their heads were hung. They didn't even try the race, and you can, that's a real reflection of life. Mm. You know, that some just go out, what's the point? Look how far behind I am. There's no point in starting. Mm. And we don't see that when you're standing up here. 
you don't look, you're not looking back, you're just going, oh, look how good I've done. Yeah. Look at me. Do you think that there's like, because I like this is like obviously something I talk about a lot with people because I've got friends that that okay like you 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 use the words like it's it's no one it's it's not anyone's fault right it's fluke so why should the people at the front worry about what's behind them because we're a community mm. if these if these guys aren't doing any good we're not doing any good you know you can't, we're all we're actually all connected mm. and. Um, and that doesn't do them any favours either. You know, having that easier ride because you don't appreciate it. Mm. And then you're, you're not as good a human if you don't, you know, you get there without appreciation and hard work. So it's better for our whole community. If, or if we don't have poverty, our whole community is better. Then you don't have, um, hopefully, as much domestic violence and you don't have as, as um, kids are feeding that can learn at school and are successful, come out of the other end successful, uh, then they're not roaming the streets and being naughty and misbehaving and they're not getting tapped on the shoulder to join the gang and behave badly. And they're, um, you know, proud and engaged in community and want to make a difference. Um, but if we, if, you know, when it's like that, that doesn't happen and that's where we get pockets of bad behaviour and, um, and, and it grows. When, like, we spoke about the, that, that we use that race as an example, um, the running race is the example, and talk about... Wow, oh, the word privilege pops up again, but... Um, yeah, yeah, so, so it pops up. Uh, there are obviously people that don't believe that that exists, that there's no such thing as, as that privilege. What would you say to them? I've always taught them through the race. Yeah. Then I see them in the video. Yeah. Um, and what? And I get that too because, like, um, it's hard, right? Like, it's hard to. I, I feel like a lot of people battle to acknowledge that the, the, their progress throughout life, a lot of it may not be due to their own effort. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, like, I don't want to say it's an ego thing, partly maybe, but it's hard to kind of. Um, what's the word? It's hard to, you know come to that realisation like, hey, maybe I've got this awesome job or I live in this awesome house, probably not off my own merit. Mm. The, I think, um, and it's interesting because, you know, we've been talking about Marty Wards a lot in the last few weeks mm. and so I've been talking to people about it and so this, this is something that comes up a bit about, but I didn't get, you know, I've been able to, I've pulled myself up by my shoestrings and I've got myself here and they should be able to do it too. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but that's all well and good if we all start on the same line. And so we, we're starting here before these children are even born, they're behind. You know, they, 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 they don't even, they're not even born equal. You know, they're, they're, they're disadvantaged before they even come out of the womb. And so ha- we, we've got to help them catch up. Or we've got to help before they get born so that they start in a, a, on the line. You know, we've got to put some time in here with our young um, rangatahi so that by the time they're having children, they're in a better position so that their children can start on the line. Um, and it's really, it's hard to see it when you're right in the middle of it. You've got to take yourself out of your own shoes and you've got to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and see what it feels like. Mm. And once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. I think that's what, you know... 
and I'm noticing that, people are starting to go, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't notice that. Um, yeah, so I, I'm really pleased I've seen that video because it's really because it's a hard thing to talk to. Yeah. But then when you go, oh, here's a picture. Here's a practical example. Yeah. yeah. So yes. speaking of Maori wards, then I guess we're there. <laughs> so how? Like, how do you see that as being a way that we can, in your own words, close this iniquity gap that we're seeing? How, how can that help? Um, a few ways. So one of them is um, we, if we have, so real basic, if you've got someone who looks like you at the table, then that's something that you think you that you might be able to do. So if mm. you see someone who looks like you, who's participating, then you're like, oh, that could be, maybe I could do that. Mm. So at the moment, we don't really have that. Now, we're really lucky this term because we've got Dinny, mm. but last term we didn't have anybody. Uh, and and last term, uh, there was the most, like more Māori applicants than ever applied, right? Four okay. candidates, and I voted for as many as I could. And none of them got in? None of them, not, not one of them got in. Mm. Um, and so, so then what do you say then when people because obviously that's a big argument you've probably heard it I know I'm hearing it everyone's saying well, well Denny got there yeah but that, that's a really easy one he's a celebrity mm. so it was Howie Tamati uh, everyone knows their name they're, they're out there they have to work Denny has worked for 18 months and I don't know he'll probably hate me for saying this he had to put himself he posted him, photos of himself in Lightcraft for 18 months <laughs> So I think he argues he's been working on it for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> you know, to, to be renowned enough for people to know his name enough for him to get the, the tick. Mm. Um, and what most of the candidates, we don't know. We don't know, it's just a name on a form, and we're, oh, I don't know. Yep. But what we do is we go, oh, that one, oh, they went to the same school as me, or they look like me, mm. or they um, have the same experiences I've had. So you go, oh, well, they'll be all right, because they're like me, so I'll tip for them. So when you've got a, so for me, if it's a Māori man candidate, well, he hasn't gone to the same school as me, he hasn't had the same experiences as me. Yeah. So it wouldn't be a natural thing for me to tick. It is because it's I purposefully do that. Yep. But for most people, you you go for what what's safe. Yep. For safe, they'll they'll have the same beliefs and they'll make. I don't know this person, yeah. but they they look and sound like me. They'll we, probably they'll probably think like me and they'll make it closer than this other guy on the piece yeah. of paper anyway. Yeah. yeah. And so what what makes it tricky here in Taranaki or in New Plymouth is that the population of Parker is seventy eight percent and the um, population of Māori is 19, just under 19%. And so you've got 78% of the population choosing people who look like them. Mm. So it's really hard for Māori to, to get in. And it's not, and I don't believe, we have got races here, and we all, are, we all have our biases, mm-hmm. all of us, every whatever ethnicity we are. But I don't think people are purposely going, oh, these are Māori men, I'm not going to vote for them. Yep. You know, it's just that we choose people who look like us. Yep. And so, so that's happening. So we've got a, so the, the government has seen that that's happening. And so they've given us some legislation that allows us to help with that. And the legislation's a bit rubbish. It's very rubbish. <laughs> You'd know. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> you it, know legislation. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's not fair. You know, mm. the, it's not great legislation. But it was, they were trying to do the, they were t- trying to do the right thing, but they just didn't quite do it 
as well as they could have. Mm. That's another, that's the next job. Um, so it says, well actually, to counter this unconscious bias that is happening with the majority of the population, we can set this thing up called a Māori ward. Mm. And that means that you can have a, a ward that specifically um, Māori candidates can stand for and one of those people will get elected and you'll always have someone um, who is elected by Māori sitting at the table. And so that helps in one way. Yep. Um, and I want to pause and emphasise elected because yeah. a lot of people don't know that, right? That's right. A, l- a lot of people day, think that, that Māori just get together and chuck someone in there. Oh, John, you're good. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this person is elected, mm. so I just wanted to emphasise that. So um, so that's, that's one reason why we need it. Mm-hmm. But, but also, um, actually having a Māori voice at that table will mean we'll make better decisions. Because um, the more diversity you have at a table, the better decision-making there is. And I know that, and, and Māori aren't one person, like, you know, whoever's going to get elected will have different opinions from other Māori. Yep. So. But... Just what, like any other individual. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but what I do know is that what's really important to Māori is whenua, you know, the land, mm-hmm. um, and community, looking after each other. Um, and so if people like that get elected to our council, then our council's going to make better decisions about how we look after our community, how we look after our land. So, so not just have, we'll, we'll make better decisions because there's a different voice, yep. but we'll make better decisions because that voice, voice will likely think land and community is important, you know, not necessarily, but possibly. Yeah, um, more than likely. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. Um, and then the other thing is... I mean, there are Māori who exist, of course, that maybe don't prioritise those things, but getting elected <laughs> without those values would be difficult. Yeah. Not impossible, yeah. but difficult. And, um, and then the other part is that we're actually entered into a treaty in 1840 to say, actually, we're going to do this together. You know, we're going to do this thing together. Mm. And that hasn't happened. And so... I know this is not enough, but it's one way of saying actually we value that partnership and we want you at the table. Mm. And I know it's not enough, and I know it's, you know. But it's a start, right? At least it's something, it's getting its start. So there's people out there as well, and I'm not going to mention names, but I'm sure you know, that, that are disputing this whole partnership clause and saying that it's, it's not a partnership. Oh, and the, and the treaty doesn't say, and we're going to go into equal partnership and do the thing with the thing, because mm. that's not how it was written. Yeah. But how, and I think the tricky bit about the treaty is that we've got three versions. Yeah. So um, it's, it's really, you know, it's making our life very difficult because, yeah. you know, we've got the English version, we've got the... Tadeo vision, and then we've got the translation of the Tadeo vision, and all three of them say different things. Yeah. But what um, my understanding is that the, the treaty was entered into for a couple, well, probably many reasons, but a couple of reasons. One was that the the white the settlers that were here then, the white settlers that were here, were misbehaving, and Māori needed protection from them. So they said, "Yep, we'll give you, we'll sign this treaty, but you got to stop these guys from misbehaving." and we're happy for new settlers to come, but you've got to stop them from misbehaving as well. Mm. Um, and we're happy for new settlers to come, and they can have some land, 
but we're going to choose which land they have, you know, and that, I know that's not what the treaty says, but I think that, you know, was one of the reasons why it was signed. And, um, and that's why, um, so my, my family came out on the first settlership that came into uh, Ngamutu, and um, they only got, were able to get on that boat because the treaty had been signed, and there was an agreement that settlers could come, and they would be able to have some land, but it would be land that was chosen for them by whichever, whoever, the iwi or hapu or whoever it was that was in charge would you know, say which land it was. Mm. So they were able to get on their boat um, to come out here because of that. But not long after getting here, everyone kind of pretended it didn't exist. And so they just got on with it. And it wasn't any of our fault. Like, it's not my fault. Yep. You know, that's a big thing too right like that's like a big thing that comes up as a lot of the descendants of I don't want to say the misfits but the descendants of the people that didn't adhere to the agreement they feel like it's a well, the, I don't know if they feel like it's their fault, they've been told it's their fault, but they keep on saying it's not our fault, it's not my fault, why do I have to adhere so I guess since you've mentioned that how do you feel about that kind of well we didn't know this generation didn't do it yep previous generation didn't do it. Yeah. It happened and it wasn't and you know, and it was it was the colonizing was happening all over the world mm. at the time. So it was normal behaviour for that time. Um, and it it wasn't good behaviour. Um, and at the time people didn't realise it wasn't good behaviour, they just thought this is the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Now we know it's not good behaviour. So we can look back and go, well, that wasn't right. That wasn't done the way it was supposed to be done. And we could, we've got a chance to fix it. We can't fix it. We, we've got a chance to change things. And so I think if we had really entered it into a treaty and there was a partnership and we had worked together to grow this nation, we wouldn't have the inequity between Māori and Pākehā that we have today. You know, if, if people who say, you know, this partnership stuff's a nonsense, then actually we all should we should all be on the start line at the same place now right now shouldn't mm. we? And we're not, so we haven't done the right thing. Because if we've done the right thing, we came here. We were the visitors, Manahiri. We came here. We we're welcomed, and then we're now at a position where there's a huge inequity between um, Māori and Pākehā, and education, poverty, employment. You know everything. But if we if we'd done it right, we'd all be we'd all have the same opportunity. Yeah, and so what do you say to I guess the people that say things like um, I don't know how to word it. Like there's people out there that say things like, no, it's their choice to stay back on that line. Like it's their choice to to go to jail and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and, pe- and people sort of say that. But, you know, I have heard. A, you know that sort of thing. Not quite as their choice, but you know, to pull your socks up. You mm-hmm. know, we've got New Zealand. You can do it. We can all do it. Um, but it's that same thing. That would be absolutely perfectly fine if we're all starting on the same starting line. You know, many, and it's not actually the poverty isn't just Maori. You know, that's Pākehā and poverty as well. But some people cannot, do not have enough food to feed their family every week, every single week. And it's not, it's not like a, 
small portion of the population that's quite a big bit, and then they've got to choose, do I pay the electricity bill or do I put some food on the table? Mm. And so how can those children that come out of their household where they don't know if they're eating today or they're eating a slice of white bread, because that's the only thing we can afford, mm -hmm. um, how can those people be, you know, be as successful as a child that gets three meals a day and a warm house to live in and all the other bits and pieces that go with them? You know, if you, if you get there, then you're like a superhero. You're like, you know, if you can stay equal with all of that disadvantage, then, then imagine what you would have been if you'd had the advantage. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Crazy. Mm. So, I guess the, the the practicality, or like, I guess let's talk about the the, the pragmatic side of, of actually establishing a Māori ward. Mm. So there's a lot of misconceptions around how this will be done. So can you kind of give, I guess, an overview of? Okay, the council have voted it in now. What what can or what will kind of happen from here? Um, so on the 21st of July, the council voted to establish a Māori ward, so it's established. Mm. So we've got it. Um, one of the bad parts of the law is that um, if 5% of the population say they disagree with the council's decision, uh, then the council has to have a binding poll mm. and they've got to um, hear from the community about whether the, the, the money ward should go ahead or whether it shouldn't and whatever the, the majority of people say in that decision uh, in that poll is what happens. So at the moment we have got a Māori ward, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's all go. Um, but if we get 5% of the population, um, so it's the electoral population, so that's 2,890 people, something like that. That's 5%, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, say they don't want to, they don't think we should have a Māori ward, then the council has to have a, a binding referendum poll um, and the community gets to vote about whether they want one or don't want one. Yeah. So just to kind of, I guess, compact it down a bit. So we've got one, one's being voted in. 2,500-ish, we'll say 2,600, I think it's just under that. 2,600 people petition and say, no, we don't agree. If that happens, then it is put out to everyone who is enrolled on the electoral roll. Yeah. They can vote yes or no yeah. whether a Māori word should be established and then that is the decision forever or till the next election or um, um, for six years okay so then so in two six terms. years time yeah two terms and then they, they get to the council get to talk about it again and they can do the same thing so is this the is this the two years since Andrew Judd's yeah. call was it yeah so six years ago when Andrew Judd was mayor, the, the council voted to establish a Māori ward. Just, right? It was like five to six yeah, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think it, it might have gone on by two. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but great, you know, awesome. But then there was a referendum, uh, a petition, they got over the 5% referendum, nobody understood the issue, nobody really understood it, nobody, not many people engaged, and, the, and then the no's won. So the council could, couldn't establish the ward. Yeah. And so this time we're still at the beginning of the process. So I think um, I think uh, I think we've got till either December or November 
for the petition to happen and to get the numbers. So it's quite a long period of time mm. for not very many numbers. Um, and so if, if that gets to that number, then we're back to the position where we've got to have a referendum yeah and the problem as well like because i know one of the the big pieces of i'm going to say propaganda one of the big pieces of propaganda kind of going around is that the majority of the people didn't want it last time but in actual fact the majority of people didn't vote did they i i I, so what happened last time the no noise was very loud Mm. you know immediately right off the bat they they knew it was going to be voted on they were ready they'd already got quite a few of their votes in advance of the decision, I think. Yep. Um, and it was very noisy. That's all you heard was a negative. You didn't really get much of um, any positive stories about it. Um, so people didn't really understand what it was all about. People um, didn't engage in it. They still don't. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> six years on, same thing again. Nobody, not many people have moved in their understanding. Yeah. Because for six years, we should have actually been talking to the community and saying, actually, there's a real... One of the big things that I've recently discovered and I find is pretty bullshit, and I might be wrong, but I haven't, I haven't had anyone correct me yet, and I've put it out, I've asked people, um, is that the councillors themselves have not been given any sort of, like, a workshop or anything like that to detail how a Māori world would actually work and function and be applicable which, hey, you might say, well, it doesn't matter because they voted it and they want it to be there anyway, but when people are engaging them about, hey, tell me about it or why did you vote it, it feels like they're very ill-equipped to actually have the conversation yeah. as councillors. Yeah. They know it's the right thing, and I think a lot of people in town in our community know it's the right thing, but they don't know why it's the right thing. Mm. And, and I think, and it's tricky because every election you get new people in and people have different things that are important to them. So obviously over the last six years that hasn't been important enough for people to think about but it would have been really helpful if people if we'd had some education on what it means and what it does and how it works so that when we had the conversation this time we were, we were a bit further ahead we're further through the race you know, yep. down the field a bit more so we're still sort of starting just off the starting line with everybody's understanding of the issues yeah but I, but now this time people are willing to engage because last time it was really scary Andrew got his head chopped off, mm. and so people were like, oh my god, dark. But this time people are like, actually, it's the right thing to do. So we're going to engage, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to do our very best. We don't really understand it still, but we know it's the right thing. Yep. And so I think we've got two, you and I, heps. We've got a couple of jobs to do. <laughs> and one is trying to help people understand you know, what it is, how it go, what the process is, and why it's a good thing to have. Mm. And and helping people um, be brave enough to speak up and to engage in the conversation. That's it, right? Like, if you don't know, then ask. Mm. Whereas I know a lot of people, they're a bit embarrassed, they don't know, and they yeah. just want to stay... Avoid the subject and... Yeah, and I know that confrontation isn't everyone's thing, but I don't believe that this conversation has to be confrontational either. I believe it can be done in a respectful way. You know, a lot of the things that you're speaking about, I'm learning mm. today. Like, there's, there were aspects that... I didn't know about it, but I know there's a lot of people who are like, well, you're Māori, of course you want a Māori ward. And that's pretty much the box they put me in. Um, and as you said, you know, we've both got our jobs to do, and I know mine's engaging people and finding out more about the Māori ward. So before I let you rock and roll, 
um, and we and we wrap things up. It's been an awesome conversation. We've been here for an hour and a half. Can't believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one thing I want to ask is, I guess for for people that might have missed the start or missed the middle, just very, I guess, plainly, why do you think a Māori ward should be established? I think that we, our, the, our council will make better decisions if we have Māori permanent Māori representation on it. So if we've got a Māori voice who's thinking from a Māori perspective about Māori issues, and Māori issues are, are issues that help all of us. They're not just specific to Māori, but mm. you know, what, what I, my understanding and what I notice is that Māori are, are, land is very important. So whenua will be an important subject for them to be talking and thinking about, decision, making decisions about community, looking after um, your people is really important. And so having people who, who that's important to on at that table will be valuable for all of us in our community. I think it's important for us as a community to say to our Māori friends and cousins and workmates and, um, and teammates, we value your voice. We want you in this position. We understand and recognise that it's hard for you to get there, so we want to help you get there. Um, and we value and want you at the table. And, I, and last time, they certainly didn't feel that way. And I think um, that it's a way of uh, one little step of um, of recognising the relationship that we were supposed to have when we signed the treaty and, and the settlers started coming is saying, actually, you guys have a place at this table. You should be here permanently at this table. It shouldn't be something you have to beg for every six years. Mm-hmm. So, but I, but I just think, and hopefully I don't sound patronising when I talk, but, but I just think we will make better decisions if we've got a Māori voice at the table. And I think um, the councillors will notice just having dinner at the table at the moment that better, more better discussions will happen and um, you know I know if you just have a group of white people these are our experiences you know that we're in this little box over here circle semi-circles whatever and if you put somebody else in who's had different experiences it widens that circle so your ideas and thoughts and, and, and the decisions you make are going to be wider and better for that having that different voice um, and so if we have, um, you know, the law, you know, the Resource Management Act and the Local Government Act says we honour the treaty and their decisions should take the treaty into account. Um, but if we don't have a Māori at the table, how do we do that? You know, if they don't get a decision, and I know there's little committees to the side of the big table, but that's not making the decision, that's just... Advising. Yeah, you know, passing on an opinion. So we actually need them to, you know, we need our Māori friends, our Māori community to be have, feel valued and have be able to stand with pride and engage in our decisions and help make us better decisions. We will be better for it. And not, and, and not you know, I'm a white person saying, I want you to come sit at my table. No, it's our table. And why the hell aren't you here? You know, how do we get you there? And I know that this isn't something Māori can do on their own. Pākehā have to do this. We have to stand up and do it. Because if Māori do it, then they get, you know, activist, troublemaker. So, um, 
change. Well, in a democracy, right, it's majority rules, mm. like essentially what it comes down to, and we are not the majority. Mm. So, well, sorry, Māori are not the majority, so mm. they need help from people of that majority. Mm. Like, ultimately, is that right? Mm. Yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, because we're in a position where we can help, we have to help, you know? Once we notice that it's help needed, we need to help. Last question, kind of completely removed from that, but this is just the question I ask for everyone that appears on the podcast and kind of the big reason why this whole podcast started. There's someone listening right now who is um, having a very hard time. They're in a bit of a dark spot. What would your advice be given, uh, bearing in mind you're not a mental health professional, um, but what would your advice be just from your own life experience to help them get out of this, mm. this this low point yeah and um, I had heaps of I'm going to talk about it today but I've had heaps of um, things happen that have been not good you know really hard in my life including we lost a little baby um, who passed and um, and you know at different times life has been really tough mm. and what's got me through is just focusing especially Jessie was a little baby um, I just had to focus on the next five minutes, and then I had to focus on the next ten minutes, and then I can focus on the next hour. Instead of trying to, you know, the future and what's happening ahead, just break it down to just um, little in- increments and shrink your world. I, I really shrank. I, I just stayed, you know, made a very small circle and just looked after my, tried to look after myself, um, and I had to have people in my circle because if I didn't, that wasn't going to be good. But um, you know, I shrank my world. I didn't. I wasn't looking after anyone else. I, you know, I just made looked after myself and my family, and um, and I made sure I exercised. You know, went for big walks every day. Um, I didn't. You know, I just kept my life really small. You know, just kept on thinking only the next what's going to happen for the next little bit, and then um, it got better. Life got better, and then it got worse. You know, there was waves. You think you got it right, and then you beat down again, and then you. So I just. Um, you know, I knew that, you know, just then shut my world back again, caught my breath again, then grew, you know, widened it a bit. Um, but I think, however you're feeling today, um, life is going to get better. You know, the, the, you can feel like it's the worst and the, you know, this is the end, this is the end of it, but actually it's going to get better. Nothing, you know, there's always something, um, there's lots of all of us have opportunities um, that we can um, that will come to us in this little tiny period of time when we're feeling really grim uh, is just that and, and a lot of it's not real it's just ourselves so don't so just look you know keep your world small look at you know just focus on the next little period of time and then as you're feeling better what are you, you know, looking at what, what do you actually want to be doing, what's going to make you happy. I don't know if I've done a good job with that. But, um, no, that's awesome. Like, yeah. focus, I think focusing on those small mm. sticks in front of you, because sometimes the, I call them, you know, the big scary goal. Mm. Um, it's motivating at times, mm. probably when things are going great, but it can be that, it can be scary mm. when when the foundations aren't right and, you know, the, the core of you isn't standing too strong. So having those little five minute ten minute mm. increments just to push through is mm. is perfect that's mm. a good way to look at it is there anything else you'd like any parting words or anything you'd like to say oh i just want to apologize for my pronunciation i try my very best with tadeo um 
but especially when you're in this sort of situation, you feel a bit, oh my God, forget why I need to stuff it up. But um, I do want to just say that um, it is hard to pronounce Tadeo right every single time when um, you haven't had any formal training in it, you know. Mm. So I apologise if I've said things wrong and it's upset people, but my intention is right. Mm. I do want to say it right, but I know that uh, my tongue isn't. Yeah, it hasn't done the ten thousand the ten thousand right. laps to bend the right That's way. Right. Awesome. Right. Well, from um, yeah, from myself, I just want to thank you for spending some time with me today. I know you're a super busy lady. You've got a lot of things going on, um, and yeah, I like I just feel a lot more. Uh, I feel a lot lighter for having to got to know you better in the last few weeks. And I look forward to all the things that we're doing together coming up. So thank you very much for joining me. Kira, thanks heaps. That was Best Side episode 26 with Karen Venables. If you want to sign the petition that we spoke about, you can head to the Best Side Instagram and Facebook pages or simply head to actionstation.org.nz. That's actionstation, one word, .org.nz. Don't forget to subscribe to our channels no matter where you listen from so you can get the latest episodes whenever we release them. Once again, please leave reviews, good, bad, or amazing. It's all welcome. I can only get better if I know exactly what you want and what you don't want. Also, if there are any guests or social issues you want me to approach, then definitely leave that in the review as well. Or you can head to our socials at Bestside on Instagram and Facebook and also on Twitter now too. So let us know what you want in there, and I'll catch you next episode.